Hello and a warm welcome to the Penguin Podcast. I'm Richard E. Grant and in each episode I'll be joined by a Penguin author from across a wide range of disciplines. Today I'm joined by a man who combines moshy monsters with mindfulness. He's Michael Acton Smith, otherwise known as Mr. Moshi. Hi, Michael. Good morning. <laughs> Michael, we're here to discuss Calm, your book on mindfulness and the key objects that lie behind the writing of it. But in a sense, what led you there was your brainchild, Moshi Monsters. Now, some of our listeners might not have a clue what I'm talking about. So could you please explain what it is? Well, Moshi Monsters was birthed in a coffee shop in South London. I was scribbling on a piece of paper and I drew a little monster. And I thought, how fun to bring that to life and allow children to adopt it and look after it. So with uh, some friends and some very talented people, we built a website and uh, kids could adopt their own monster and play with it and go on adventures in a weird and wonderful world. And uh, it grew slowly at first and then it took off like a rocket. So... How did you get from Moshi Monsters to exploring the concept of mindfulness, which is the subject of your book called Calm? Well, I'm still very heavily involved with Mind Candy, the company that created Moshi Monsters. But there's another aspect to my life that I think is very important. I've always loved the idea of calm. I work incredibly hard, as, as many entrepreneurs do. It can be very stressful, very intense life. You're always on, checking your emails you know, in the middle of the night, mm -hmm. rarely taking holidays. So uh, a few years ago, um, when things got a little bit too intense, I decided to explore this idea of mindfulness and meditation a little bit more. I'd heard a lot about it. I'd started reading about it. And uh, I have a friend called Alex Chu, who knows a lot more about it than I do. And together, we launched a business called Calm. And we bought the domain name calm.com, which uh, we thought was a great domain. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think it's such a lovely word. And we launched an app with some guided meditations, and it grew to 2 million downloads. And, uh, and then I decided to, to write a book. So you're very driven. Yes. Yeah, very, um, very driven. I love, as I say, creating things and making things. But I think it's possible to do that and be calm at the same time. I think it's the yin and the yang. If you're too driven and too intense and too stressed out, that's when the trouble comes about. And we've seen it many times. There are many millionaires and billionaires in the world who are unhappy, who commit suicide, who are depressed. And there are people with nothing who are supremely happy. And I think getting to the nub of that and unwrapping it and understanding it, I think is one of life's great mysteries. Okay. What does mindfulness actually mean? So it's one of these words that's been bandied around so much. It's almost become the word of the moment. In Who invented it? It's, it's been around for a, a long, long time. It's, you know, many Eastern cultures have influenced and taught mindfulness. But in its more modern incantation, mindfulness is essentially living life in the moment. Most of us go through life worried about the future, stressing about things that happened in the past. How often do we stop and actually experience the moment? Because in reality, that's what life really is, a connection of a string of moments. And meditation is a practice that can help us become more mindful. And uh, it's a very valuable skill. You are speaking and looking at somebody who has lived his entire life so far in the anti-calm. OK, <laughs> let's hear a clip from the audiobook of Calm. How to Meditate When starting a meditation practice, select a regular time and place. Mornings are ideal as the mind is clear and it sets a tone for the day. The best way to start is with 10-minute sessions. Over time, as you become more comfortable, 
feel free to increase the sessions to 15 and then 20 minutes. Little and often is better than long sessions that are infrequent. Find a quiet place to sit where you won't be disturbed. Sit with a straight back in a position that feels comfortable and close your eyes. Rest your hands gently on your knees or cup them softly in your lap. Let your body rest easily and breathe gently. Become aware of your breath as it flows into your body and as it leaves your body. Focus on the rising of your belly on the in-breath and the fall on the out-breath. Keep the rhythm of your breathing natural. Don't try to change it in any way, just be aware of it. Notice the very beginning of the inhalation and where it connects to the exhalation. When thoughts arise, note them and then let them dissolve. Keep returning your focus to the breath. Once your mind relaxes, you can expand your awareness to your whole body, noting whatever sensations you feel. Don't judge the sensations. Just note what's happening. Don't try to change what's happening. Simply observe things as they are. Michael, could you please bring out your first object? My first object, where to begin? Well, when I wrote the book, I spent a lot of late nights on it and uh, I love drinking tea. Preparing tea is a very kind of meditative process. Most of us rush through it and boil the kettle and go off and do other things. And I think it's important to spend that minute or two just pausing and stopping and thinking. So I would brew my favourite tea, which uh, is called Relax, funnily enough. And it's uh, organic chamomile, fennel, and my favourite ingredient, marshmallow root tea. (laughs) Marshmallow tea is exactly like that lyric from the Beatles song. So when did you realise the true potential of mindfulness? I think it was when I studied it and tried meditating for myself. As I say, I'd heard a lot about it, and I think meditation and mindfulness actually have quite a bad PR. There's a lot of baggage associated with it. People assume it has religious connotations, it's very spiritual, it's wrapped up in hippie thinking. But what fascinated me was the science behind it. There have been hundreds of peer-reviewed scientific papers written on mindfulness and the way meditation can literally rewire our brains. I'm a huge believer in neuroplasticity, which uh, you know talks about how we're not set with a, a set mind frame. We can change our, our outlook on the world, our intelligence, our happiness, and a whole host of other traits that many of us think are fixed. So would you say it's nothing to do with spirituality? It's about breathing and listening to yourself breathe. It can be about spirituality, it can be about religion, it can be about whatever you want it to be, but I think at its core essence, what I love is the fact that we focus when we meditate on a constant, our breathing. Breathing is something we all do 600, five to 600 million times in our life, depending on how long we live. But how often do any of us actually pay attention to that? And I think stopping and pausing and stilling those thoughts that race around our head constantly and just being with your breath, even if it's for a few minutes every day, has an incredibly powerful impact on the rest of your life. So since discovering this, what impact has it directly had on your life? So I thought before I started meditating that it was essentially just a chance to sit still and and chill out and, and be quiet. And I think it's part of that. But more than that, what it actually is, is we're training the attention muscle in our minds in the way that we go to the gym and we work weights to uh, improve our muscles. Mm -hmm. What meditation does is 
trains our attention muscle because our minds wander constantly. And when we meditate, we notice that wandering and then we bring ourselves back to the breath and we do it again and again. And the more we do it and the more we practice meditation, the stronger that attention muscle becomes. And so in our everyday life, being in control of our mind in that way has many benefits. For instance, you can respond to situations instead of reacting. Most of us are yanked around by our emotions, happy one minute, sad the next. When you meditate, you take control of that and you decide how you're going to feel in a specific instance. Meditation and mindfulness have many other benefits, such as helping us sleep better, giving us more energy, lowering our blood pressure. And I've noticed many of these myself. I still find meditating very difficult because it's hard to still that voice in our heads. But the more I do it, the better I've become. And has it affected your friendship group? It's definitely helped and improved my relationships. I find I am less judgmental of people. I'm less quick to uh, snap and, and become angry. And I think um, if you asked people around me, they would notice that. Not that I was a, a wild, chaotic, crazy, angry character before, but I think it's definitely kind of smoothed the bumps that one has in life. Have you lost friends or avoided people because they are the hyper-stressed version of what you're trying to avoid? Or do you try and educate them into your way of living? Well, meditation is one of these tricky things that you don't want to kind of uh, become too much of a, an advocate mm -hmm. for fear of um, <laughs> annoying people. There's a great uh, New Yorker quote where a lady is saying to a friend in a cafe, I've been gluten-free for a week, but I'm already very annoying. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, it's one of those things where I don't kind of force it on anyone. I think the book is a nice way of people discovering it at their own tempo. And calm, again, is something that everyone can understand. Everyone, I think, hopefully understands the value and appreciates calm. And if they want to go into it at that layer deeper and actually meditate and try for themselves, they can. But I, I wouldn't force it on folks. And I do find myself spending less time with people that are hyper-stressed, who are vampires of energy, who take energy rather than radiators. And we all know the radiators and vampires in our life. Some make us feel wonderful and some make us drained after a, a meeting with them. That makes me as a radiating vampire. Okay, <laughs> this is a great point. Can you, can you describe how you structured your book and how it feels? Yes, so we didn't want to create a book that was all text and a very heavy tome to wade through. We wanted something quite light and, and easy that people could dip into and out of. But what about the, book, the feel of the book? The feel, that the texture of the front cover is, mm -hmm. is very calming. Uh, the way it catches the light, I think, is beautiful. Can you can please describe how it is, what the texture is? So it's, it's very different to a, a normal book. It has a kind of very soft, not quite flock carpet feel to it. Uh, certainly not like a traditional cardboard feel. It's flexible to the touch. <laughs> Genital soft, I, I think wouldn't call quite it. use that uh, well, description. It's as soft as you can get, isn't it? <laughs> um, we have a section at the end that uh, teaches you origami and uh, some of the pages, if you fold in a certain way, spell out the word calm, which is a nice uh, meditative thing to do when you finish reading it. So uh, there's lots of secrets to, to unravel. Okay. Your success with Moshi Monsters is thanks to the rise of the internet and technology. How much do you think this is a source of modern-day stress and anxiety? Very good question. So technology is wonderful. It's extraordinary how fast things have been accelerating over the last few years. These devices that we carry with us and goodness knows what's happening over the next years from artificial intelligence to virtual reality to drones. So 
I personally don't think technology is a bad thing. It's how we interact with it that matters. It's neither good nor bad. And I think becoming mindful about our use of technology is the key. So rather than becoming slave to our devices, we can become masters of them. Instead of reaching for our phone whenever we're in a queue or walking down the street and checking like a slot machine addict our Twitter feed or our Facebook feed, Mm -hmm. we can pause and stop and ask ourselves, do we really need to check? Twitter one more time? Will there really be anything new going on? Can we not wait and do it later? And so I think, again, becoming mindful of our use of technology is something very valuable. Otherwise, we're all going to become zombies. If you ever look at a train station platform or or a busy street, how many people are mindlessly wandering down the streets on their phones? Oh, I think it's a silhouette of our age that everybody's head is bent down and looking at a tablet or exactly. a phone. But this is something that is so addictive. Is it a bad thing? You, you clearly think it is. Well, no, I don't think it's a bad thing. I think it's wonderful. I love my tablet. I love my phone. I love my PC. Do you it last thing before you go to bed? I used to. This is the important thing. I used to go to bed tapping out one final email and often I'd wake up with my phone pressed against my face at three in the morning. I don't think that's healthy. There have been occasions where I've woken up in the middle of the night and instinctively gone to check if there are any emails or important messages. So Why not? Well, because does that give our minds a whirring crazy minds the chance to properly rest if we own a high-end wonderful sports car would we run it at top gear constantly night and day no yes <laughs> well we might but we'd probably be spending a lot of trips to the garage and have very expensive bills from our mechanic and this is what's happening this is the modern ill of society why depression and anxiety if you weren't doing this would you be a priest <laughs> no because you're not. filled with a kind of zealot-like mission, it seems well, to me. I'm passionate, I'm driven, but I'm, I'm passionate about calm and that mission, but I'm also passionate about technology and moshi monsters and virtual reality and all the other wonderful things I love creating in technology. And I don't think it's an either-or. I think all enrich the human condition as long as we decide how and when we use them. Well, if you're not yet feeling mindful, let's hear another clip from the audiobook of calm, and it's taken from the first part about nature, in which you refer to as a shortcut to serenity. The natural world is at the heart of many different spiritual traditions, from the Native American reverence towards the great spirit of Mother Earth, to the world tree of Norse mythology, and the lotus flower iconography of Buddhism. The reassuring cycle of the natural world is at once a humbling reminder of our own irrelevance and an affirming eternal truth. The natural world is relentless and impervious to human time, and simultaneously so much a part of our being that when we lose touch with it, we are cut off from a fundamental part of ourselves. For the Romantic poets, perhaps the most famous exponents of the healing power of nature, with their beauty is truth and truth is beauty philosophy, an appreciation of the natural world was a potent antidote to modern life. Now, I mean, it sounds very simple. Some people might even say it's obvious, but do you think it's a rather sad reflection of modern life that people need a book or an app to remind them to actually sit down and smell roses? Well, it is simple and it it is common sense, but it's a sad state of the world that uh, over the last few decades, standards of living have been rising but our general happiness levels have plateaued and in in many countries are declining. What on earth is going on? 
The prescription of antidepressant drugs has doubled in the last few years. The World Health Organization estimates that I think $300 billion is lost to businesses annually because of stress. There's a word in Japanese to describe death from overwork. Something is going on. Something is happening. And I think collectively as a society, we need to pause and stop and think because going faster and faster is not the solution. And I think we can still achieve and do wonderful things and push the human race forward. But we also need to be mindful about how we do that. And pausing every now and then to reflect and meditate, I think, is a a very valuable thing to do. So do you think this is something we should have as part of our education system? I think that would be wonderful. There's studies going on about this at the moment, and uh, the early results have been incredibly important. Why do we still teach our children the similar curriculum that we did in the Industrial Revolution? Aren't there more valuable skills that they could be learning to prepare them for the very different 21st century life? We're starting. Coding is being taught in schools. I think that's wonderful. But what about healthy eating and wellness and happiness and mindfulness? I think these are all really valuable skills as well. We see older children, teenagers, with the rise of social media and uh, body image, how stressed and anxious they have become. It's a massive issue, mental health issues for the younger generation. And who is teaching them them? Why is no one teaching us how to use our minds? It doesn't come with an instruction manual. It's arguably the most important thing we can do for the next generation. But most of us don't even know how to control our own minds. So you've got an object here in front of us that is a pebble. What is that about? So this pebble was given to me by my niece and... uh, I keep it on my desk and it's just an average random pebble from the the street. But it reminds me to uh, look at the world through the eyes of uh, kids, that that innocent look that we all had when we were younger, where everything was exciting and new, from a snowflake to kind of a thunderstorm. And I think that's a a really wonderful way to, to go through life. Excellent. Let's hear a clip from the audiobook of Calm in which you tell us how adults can actually learn a lot from children. Children are in and of the moment. They are naturally less stressed and anxious than adults. Spending time with them and tuning into this energy is a potent exercise in everyday calm. No matter what age you are, all adults can learn something from the attitude of young children. They have a naturally unfettered curiosity about the world. It's a trait that inspires them to meet new experiences with a gentle, open-minded spirit of inquiry. Equally, in addition to their powers of fantasy and creativity, children have a glorious way of reminding us of the true wonder that exists in daily life, the sort of real-world magic that has become invisible to many adults. Stones and leaves can be intensely beautiful. The scale and mystery of space is utterly mind-boggling. The blooming of a flower, the industry of bees, and the power of the ocean are all undeniably magnificent. It's just that we've forgotten this. Spending time with children is a shortcut to awe. I've been accused of spending my whole life being in the land of make-believe because that's what I get paid to do. So let's talk about creativity and how to unlock this. Do we all have inner creativity, in your view, waiting to be unlocked? I think we do. I think we can all unlock that uh, crazy creative side of us if, if only we know how. And again, 
lost and in the swirling, chaotic busyness of everyday life, that part of us gets tucked away. So what do you think causes people to dismiss themselves as not being creative? If you go into a, a classroom and ask a group of children, are there any artists in this room? Mm-hmm. Pretty much every hand will go up. Some kids will put both hands up. Mm-hmm. They're all artists. They're all creative. They can't wait to show you their creations. Once they get to the age of about nine, ten, you start asking that question, fewer hands go up. And until you get to adults, you ask a group of adults, are there any uh, artists in the room? Hardly anyone will put their hand up. What on earth has happened? Where has that creativity gone? We're still the same people. So I would say it's just something that perhaps the schooling system beats it out of us. And uh, we think creativity is something frivolous and not important to succeed in the world that we live. I don't know. But uh, it's something that I think makes me, me sad. And I wish more people could tap into their inner child and their creativity, because I think a lot more wonderful things would be created and, and made in the world. So since you have become mindful, where has and how has your creativity expressed itself? I think it is easier now for me to get into a state of flow. And I think flow is one of the most amazing conditions for humans to to be in. It is that state when you lose yourself and you lose all track of time when you're listening to an extraordinary piece of music or you're playing a video game or you're scribbling on your notebook or you're writing a novel. And that is something that I think fewer of us are getting into because of the noise of modern society, because our phone is chirping away in our pocket. I used to go into a coffee shop and have my phone face up on a table. And uh, whenever I'd get close to getting into flow, bing, it would pull me out. Mm-hmm. And I think it's the same for a lot of people. OK, here's a clip from the audiobook of Calm with a few tips about how you might tap into your creative side. Until fairly recently, the concept of creativity was shrouded in mystery. People thought of creative genius as something inherent within the gifted minds of a lucky few. This notion of creativity felt at one remove from the creative impulses of the rest of us, somehow different from the satisfaction you or I might get from thinking up an imaginative solution to a practical problem, devising a new recipe or secretly sketching a stranger on the train. In recent years, Advances in our understanding of neuroscience, psychology, and child development have shown us that the ability to be creative is a fundamental human trait, something we all share and need to use. What's more, far from being a genetic gift, creativity is something that can be developed, strengthened, and practiced. Unlocking your inner creativity is a key part of the calm philosophy. Through adopting a calm approach to life, you can help to free up your innate imaginative ability. The more that you nourish this side of yourself, the more you will feed back into your deep sense of calm. Michael, when you were a little boy, did you know what route you were going to take into your life? What did you dream of being? I didn't know what I wanted to be when I was little. I had wonderful parents who were very encouraging and supportive of all my 
harebrained ideas that I put out there. So one day I dug up a hole in the back garden and wanted to become a, a koi carp farmer. Mm-hmm. Um, then I wanted to become a professional golfer and broke the, the shed window with my golf club. Um, I sold bookmarks outside the front of our house. On and on and on. And I, I think I was very lucky, as I say, because my parents never told me any of these were ridiculous. They encouraged me with every single one. And I think that's one of the best things we can do for our children, allowing them to explore and uh, go off on these flights of fantasy and find out what they uh, click with. Uh, so you agitated as a child or very impulsive? I don't know if agitation is the right word. I was very um, active and uh, I was very curious. I think curious is is a great trait that a lot of children have. Again, this is another trait that we lose as we get older. And I think many of the most fascinating people in the world are curious. If you're lucky enough to sit next to a curious person at a dinner party, you'll have a, a great conversation rather than so many people that just want to talk about themselves. But isn't curiosity one of the big driving forces of the internet? That you're constantly snatching out what is out there Absolutely. that you don't know. Absolutely, which I think is great and one of the wonderful things about the internet. But again, if we do it on our own terms, if we go down a, a rabbit hole and suddenly lose 10 hours when we should be doing our homework or, or working on something and uh, we've learned all sorts of random things, then maybe that's not as good as uh, doing it in a more mindful way where we're exploring and, and discovering stuff that uh, we actually want to learn. So I think what I'm most impressed by are people who have managed to strike this balance. They can live a, a wonderful calm, mindful life, but still do extraordinary things and not give up the day job. I'm not suggesting that the solution is to go and live in the Far East and uh, not speak to anyone for for the rest of our life. I think that's too extreme. I think life is is about balance. Palo Santo. Palo Santo. Can you tell us about that? Palo Santo in Spanish means holy wood. And this... Could you pass it to me? Yes. Thank you. This comes from a tree in certain parts of South America. It smells absolutely amazing. It's wonderful. I don't know if we're allowed to light it in here, but uh, if we Get did, the bomb. Uh, um, if we did light it, what would happen is it would burn um, for about thirty or forty seconds, and then you'd blow it out, and it would give off this this wonderful waves of white smoke that would fill the room. Shamans have used it before ceremonies in South America to purify and cleanse a room. People have also used it to to guard off evil spirits. And I just um, have used it when I wrote the book just to kind of um, put myself in a certain calm frame of mind. One of the final pages of Calm is a space to jot down some of your favourite things that make you happy. What would you put down there, Michael? Some of the things that make me happy. Mm -hmm. Well, and this is one of the the keys, as I say, to to mindfulness, living in the now. Again, our brains are constantly thinking of the future, worrying about the past. So uh, anything from buying penny sweets in an old-fashioned sweet shop to the air after a a thunderstorm to solving a a tricky crossword puzzle, often the most joyful, amazing things in life are, are just these little flashes, these moments. Um, what are your hopes for calm and for mindfulness more generally in the years ahead? 
You're you're a man on a mission, very clearly. Well, I I uh, I think it's time for a calm revolution. <laughs> so I would love to see more people putting aside their eye rolling, laying aside the cynicism, and and giving this a go themselves, and understanding that life is not about living at a million miles an hour. That we can still achieve and do wonderful, extraordinary things. We can still be stressed to a certain extent, but there's a limit. And uh, stopping and pausing every now and then, and calming the whirring of our minds is a great thing, and will make our lives better. Will make the lives around us better, and hopefully improve the condition of the world. Well, I hope you are all feeling a whole lot calmer having listened to this episode of the Penguin Podcast. Michael, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. New from Penguin Random House Audio, Bill Nye reads Tom Mitchell's Penguin Lessons, a unique and moving true story which has captured imaginations around the world. Set against Argentina's turbulent years following the collapse of the corrupt Peronist regime, this is the heartwarming story of Juan Salvador the Penguin. While the penguin flapped and floundered ineffectually in the bag, I held its head firmly with newspaper and brute force. Using some stout rubber bands that I'd found during my search for cleaning equipment, I encircled its beak several times, carefully avoiding its nostrils, and I terminated the last loop by placing a final twist of rubber across its sharp point. Its feet scrabbled in the air as it tried to twist and turn, but hanging in the bag, it couldn't reach me. It was breathing hard, and its pulse was visibly throbbing in its throat and head as it continued to kick and struggle, all to no avail, since it was unable to get a purchase on anything. Its eyes, normally the size of peas, bulged with fury, frustration, and hatred. How dare you! I'll make you pay for this. You see, if I don't, they said. It was hard to believe that the penguin had been at death's door only a short time ago. There was nothing for it but to adopt the clinical detachment of a vet. The bird wouldn't survive unless I cleaned it properly. Right then, you bloody little bird, I said. Come here. I've got to be cruel to be kind. My finger throbbed and hurt, and any sympathy I might have felt for the penguin had all but gone down the drain with my blood. Making sure its feet were securely trussed, I tied the handles of the bag around its body to hold its wings close. Satisfied that it was finally subdued, I put it back in the bidet and began the cleaning process by pouring a handful of washing-up liquid over its back. Now that its beak was no longer a dangerous weapon, I was able to work the detergent into its short, stubby feathers. The task was not made any easier by the dressing on my wounded finger or by the wriggling of the bird, but the string bag worked perfectly as a restraint, holding it gently without restricting the cleaning. Suddenly, the exhausted penguin lay still. The change in attitude and behaviour was astonishingly rapid, far faster than I can now relate. Within moments of being a terrified, hostile, and resentful animal, which was quite understandably determined to exact revenge on me, a representative of the race that had so cruelly exterminated thousands of its closest relatives. It became a docile and cooperative partner in this clean-up operation. Available now on iTunes and Audible. <laughs>